Heavenly Father, we do thank you for um, your word, your revelation to us, and that you have revealed yourself to us both in the light of nature and in the light of Scripture. God, we would um, be lost, we would be nothing without you. Lord, we pray that uh, you would work in our minds and our hearts and our wills through your word, that you would affect us, and that you would change our dispositions from an orientation of self to to uh, looking toward you for for all things and to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in verses 8 through 10 this morning of Jude. Jude says, in like, Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. This is God's word. Be seated. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end is the way to death. It's a verse I've heard a couple of times this week, and it's so fitting. Um, a contrasting verse comes to mind. God says in Isaiah, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. The question I think that our text raises, in, at least in my mind, is the question, who is the master? Who is the master? Is it you? Is it someone else? Is it a guru? Or is it Christ? Am I the king and the master of my own universe, or is Christ the Lord and master of all? the question that comes to my mind and even as christians that lie of the serpent tugs at our hearts that you can be like god the truth be told the desire of my flesh is to be the god of my own universe and i use that same tactic that the devil used to undermine god's authority and inject skepticism into the word of god and to say did god really say it So if I can use some philosophical language for a moment, I think it really comes back to our epistemology. How do we know what we know? And our epistemology, our source of knowledge, our standard of truth, will determine both then our anthropology and our theology. How we understand men and how we understand God is based on what we know and the source of that knowledge. Greg Bonson said, to reject revelational epistemology is to commit yourself to defending the truth of autonomous epistemology. Now, if that philosophical jargon is lost on you, I'm going to quote another philosopher in the same vein. you got to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil and it may be the Lord, 
but you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan. And the question is, which master's voice will we submit to? Do we hear the voice of the master and follow him? Are we his sheep? Or do we listen to the voice of our own autonomy? Jude correctly identifies the people who threaten the church in this time as people of autonomous self-regulation. People who do not hear the voice of the great shepherd and follow him, but instead go their own way. And so as we take his warnings, we're moved by his um, warnings to examine the degree to which we are submissive to the master. And we should really be moved to repentance in our own lives to ultimately plead the blood of Christ because we all try to go our own autonomous direction. And also, we are even called in this letter particularly to be contenders for the faith. So this text really does help us to expose the undergirding um, foundation of the false teachers and their unfruitful works. So the first thing that Jude does here is he exposes the dark deeds of these saboteurs, these people who have crept into the church. He's exposing their deeds. And what he does is he compares them to the wickedness from the previous few verses that we discussed a couple weeks ago. Um, so if you recall from last time, we had the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, who though God dramatically saved them through the Exodus, they failed to believe God. They were afraid of the big people in Canaan, and they failed to believe God. And then we saw the angels, or watchers, which I believe from, from the book of Enoch, um, who left their natural habitation to pursue unnatural relationships with human women. And then we see uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, who, who, though they occupied probably the most fertile place in the land, abused what they had been given, and they were corrupt, they were indulgent, they were engaging in unnatural sexuality. And all of those things share this common theme, is that all of them overstepped God's boundaries. The boundaries God laid out, they went outside of those. They followed the desires of their own hearts, rather than the word and the command of the Lord. It may have been from fear, from unbelief, lust, indulgence, but they substituted their own personal standard of right and wrong for God's. And Jude kind of draws an arrow here between these false teachers and those stories. He says, Yet, in like manner, in the same way, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, Reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Did you notice their source? The source for their standard? The thing that governs their activities? Relying on their dreams. Now, are dreams a reliable standard by which to determine our doctrine and our practice? I mean, every cult leader who has fleeced the flock has had a dream. He's had private revelation from God. One such man was afflicting the church at Colossae. says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. We are uh, spiritual creatures. Each of us is desirous of an intense spiritual <coughs> encounter, I, I believe. 
And so by nature, those people, those leaders who appear to have this inside track to God are attractive to us. They appeal to us. They have something that I, I don't think I have. They, they, they have what I want to have. How do I get what they have? How do, they, how do I get the inside track with God? The problem with that is there is no secret higher knowledge or higher plane. That's called Gnosticism. That's a heresy. Each of God's people is indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. We are a nation of priests. We have equal access to the throne of grace. We have equal access to the ordinary means of grace. And we all stand on equal footing because we all stand on Christ alone. So on the rare occasion that God has communicated through dreams, it's been for very specific reasons. And those things are always to be tested, to be verified as true. And they are to be compared to Scripture. Now, that I, I do believe, I don't just write off spiritual experiences that people are having. I, I believe a lot of people are having genuine, intense spiritual encounters. But the terrifying thing is that I, I think most of those are demonic spiritual encounters. Most of those things come straight from the occult. The Bible commands that we test the spirits. And the chief way we can test the spirits is through their alignment with God's word as it's found in the Bible. So here, these dreamers are failing. They're getting a failing grade because their dreams cause them to do very unbiblical things like defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. the men of Sodom defiled the flesh, these people do the same thing. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And that's not God's will. Um, I I don't care if the sweetest, most gentle, insightful guru says that it's God's will that we partake of sexual pleasures in a way that's outside the bonds of biblical marriage. He's a deceiver. He's never heard a single word of direct revelation from God in his life. I've been captivated by the cults or Maybe I should say I've been captivated by the study of the cults the past couple weeks. Um, and it's really amazing that the, this defiling of the flesh is common to, to every single cult. Mormonism, for example, is intensely sexual in its nature and its doctrine. In cult settings, there are perverse men, often men of influence, who claim to have heard God tell them that they're to take a young girl as their wife, Right? or multiple women. They deceive these impressionable young women into inappropriate relationships by telling them, well, this is God's will for your life. I heard it. I heard it in a dream. Like, you can't disobey God. And that is, of course, the height of wickedness. It's a wicked, it's a blasphemous misrepresentation of God's revelation. And it disregards the ordained boundaries of creation. And it caters to the base, disgusting desires of human nature. So in in doing these types of things, in defiling the flesh, in claiming direct revelation from God, they are rejecting the authority of Christ and blaspheming his messengers. Now, just just saying that kind of uh, tipped my hand to my interpretation of what Jude means here when he says they reject 
authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Uh, th- those are diff- difficult phrases, and uh, what I believe him to be saying is that they reject the mastery of Christ, and they reject his angels, his, his messengers. Um, there's many opinions on what authority they're rejecting and who these glorious ones are. Um, for example, Calvin believes they're rejecting magisterial, like civil authority, and that the glorious ones are, are civil magistrates. Uh, to me, the phrase glorious ones is a bit excessive for magistrates. <laughs> and, and nowhere in scripture is that terminology used of civil authorities or ecclesiastical authorities for that matter, which is another interpretation. Um, but it is occasionally used of angelic beings. Also, nothing in the surrounding context makes me think he's talking about civil authorities. What Jude has been on about um, from the beginning and continues on through the letter is about the mastery of Christ. He says, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. He says, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And later he says, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end, to Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. So I think the context makes it plain to me that these false teachers are rejecting specifically the the authority of Jesus Christ in their lives. When he talks about the glorious ones, I think he's talking about angels. Um, In Scripture, angels are viewed as kind of mediators of God's revelation. For example, in Hebrews, that the Old Covenant message was said to have been declared by angels. It says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How can we neglect this greater revelation? I think he's talking about angels there, though I admit those are hard phrases. These these false teachers adhere to their own standard, and they reject the authority of Christ as found in his revelation, as we, we talked about this morning in Sunday school. They rely on their own dreams. Wicked sexual defilement um, emerges even as a part of their religious practice. They have disregard for the authority of Christ. And really, they're like just like those other three examples of, of um, Israel and the angels and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and they're overstepping God's righteously ordained boundaries. And I think that's the point here. They're overstepping God's ordained boundaries. Next here, Jude illustrates the depravity of the false teachers by way of uh, a positive illustration in verse 9. But when the archangel, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, of course, the first thing that's immediately obvious to a Bible reader is this story is not in the Bible. Satan and Michael fighting over the body of Moses. Um, in the last chapter of Deuteronomy, in verse chapter 34, we read of the death of Moses on Mount Nebo. And when he died, it says that the Lord buried him in the valley of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. So this story is, is um, that Jude is referencing here is probably from the intertestamental period that the Jews were playing off this story from Deuteronomy 34. <coughs> we know about this story from other ancient writers. We actually have a manuscript of what's called the Testament of Moses, that they believe this story came.
came from, but the ending is missing in that manuscript, and that's apparently where the story is coming from. So we know about it from just other secondary sources. Um, if, if we had the story, I think it might be illuminating, like last week we talked about Enoch, and it was illuminating, it was helpful, right? But I, I want to make this point that God does not rely on extra-biblical sources to make himself clear in Scripture. The details maybe are a bit more fuzzy in this case than, than last week, but the main point is, is always clear. And God's Word does stand on its own two feet. So we don't need these external sources. So I think the point here is actually fairly plain. Um, and it is that Michael's sphere of authority does not include the divine right to pronounce a final verdict on the devil. That's not within God's ordained boundaries. It's not his job. The Greek of uh, in this the Greek in here um, is very forensic in nature. It's legal in nature, and that that's to say that this this isn't a, just a spat or a quarrel between the devil and Michael. This is a, a legal battle, a courtroom debate, if you will. And Michael, who is among the greatest, perhaps one of the greatest created beings, didn't dare to pronounce judgment on the devil because he's not the judge. Had he done so, he would have, like all the rest of Jude's examples, trespassed God's ordained boundaries. And it seems strange to us, Michael, he's going at it with the devil himself. I mean, we could could just pronounce judgment on the devil, right? We all know he's going to be judged. But it would have been wicked presumption for him to pronounce the verdict of judgment for himself, and he would have been making himself as God. I think that's Jude's point. And fallen humanity, as fallen humanity, we also so want to be God. The false teachers set themselves up as repositories of divine revelation. Um, and it's no different than with the false teachers of, of our day. The, the hyper-charismatic NAR type folks, um, word of faith teachers, openly teach that we are little gods. We openly teach that little gods. That because we are created in His image, we are little gods and we can speak things into existence. In an act of creative and divine fiat, we can speak health, wealth, and prosperity into existence because we are little gods. Similarly, on another um, spectrum, we find people today changing the Word of God and becoming gods unto themselves by way of um, progress, human progress. We have progressed so much beyond ancient man. We know so much more than they did. We have better modern science. So they will say things like, well, Jesus didn't understand what we understand today. Right? Paul didn't understand what we understand now. These types of things and so many more things take that standard and rule for our life out of the hands of divine revelation and put it in the hands of human autonomy. And how attractive it is to me, to sinful man. That we can be like God. That we can create utopia without Him. That we can cure our own infirmities. Pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That we can rightly divide right and wrong on our own. God tells the people in Numbers there to wear this tassel to remind them of, of this. That they're not to follow after 
your own heart and your own eyes, which are inclined, which you are inclined to whore after. So it's our natural desire to assume the position of God. And we can be reminded by this strange story of Michael and the devil that that we ought not to dare, ought not dare to to assume the position of God, to overstep those boundaries. And even as we contend for the faith and we can draw our attention, the attention of, of our friends and neighbors who are caught up in these scary movements, just like Jude does here, that we're not to overstep God's boundaries. His ordained boundaries is given in Scripture and in the light of nature. But Jude goes on here, he contrasts the proper um, activities, the proper use of authority of Michael with the wickedness of the heretics here. He sets up a contrast in verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They operate on, on pure instincts, like animals. Michael, the archangel, knows his place in the universe, and he understands God's established order, and he then adjusts his behavior to match. My dog this week or last week was compelled by his animal nature to, when we were gone at the play, to, to pull some, there were some pork chops we had that smelled terrible, so we threw them away, and, and he was compelled to pull them out of the trash can, and when we returned home, um, you know, I was, had the joy of cleaning up his, his destruction, um, because everything, he, he's a sensitive dog, and he's allergic to everything, and everything makes him sick, so he um, oh, released <laughs> what he had consumed. And, <laughs> you know, as his master, knowing him, I would never have given him that meat, because I knew it would make him sick. But he's a dog, he's got this super sniffer, and there's meat in the trash can. <laughs> he doesn't have the ability to think that far ahead. He just knows pork chops smell good, pork chops are within reach, so don't mind if I do. <laughs> These people, Jude says, are like Burkhoff, my dog, Burkhoff. Sin smells good. Sin is within reach. Don't mind if I do. You see this talked about in Romans chapter 1, familiar passage in verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal men, and birds and animals and reptiles. See that substitute there, substituting God for us. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 
So they're, they're like the people that we read about in Judges, where everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. I think this is what we encounter today as a result of, of naturalism, though it's a, a human problem. Naturalism is kind of a cata, uh, catalyst that sort of propels this whole thing forward at a, a, a speedy rate. Um, but they would say, well, for example, I'm naturally inclined, because there's no God, it's just natural, it's just biology. I'm naturally inclined to think I'm a woman. I'm naturally inclined toward a homosexual desire. I'm naturally inclined to, to polyamory, to, to sleeping around, right? It's just natural. But really, it's, it's ridiculous on its face, at least from a Christian worldview. I mean, for example, every normal male is attracted to the human or to, to the female form, and I assume vice versa. And it's a part of our biology. But just because it's part of our biology, does that mean we're permitted to lust or to sleep around because it's natural? I mean, some of them would say yes, yes, that is the case. But anyone with a Christian worldview, or really even an ounce of common sense for that matter, would have to say, of course not, of course that's not okay. If, if mammalian biology is our only standard, we're, we're in deep, deep trouble. And that's not really even mentioning that many of these desires that I've brought up are put forth in, in the Bible as being completely unnatural, counter to nature. They may have biological or chemical elements to them, but from a revelational perspective, they were never a part of the blueprint of human society. So Jude is trying to point out to us, to the saints, that, you know, sure, these false teachers are attractive. Uh, they claim dreams of supernatural revelation from God, but they are perverse. The only authority they will submit to is their own base animal desires, and they revile the things of God. And he says that they are destroyed by all that they understand instinctively. You know, like Burkhoff was destroyed by what he understood instinctively. And he keeps coming back to this point about judgment and destruction. This is important to Jude because he's trying to dissuade saints from following these people. He keeps bringing that up. He wants to make sure we understand the consequences of this worldview. Now, is it right for Jude to talk this way? Didn't we just talk about how Michael didn't pronounce judgment on the very devil himself? How can... Jude talk about judgment. Jude is not, and this is important to understand, Jude is not proclaiming his own judgment. He's issuing a warning, and a warning that's been throughout Scripture manifest from God. He's saying, if you depart from God's standards and go your own way, you're headed down a path of sure destruction. We hear it so often that the 11th commandment is, Thou shalt not judge. Uh, when, when Pope Francis was act, asked about the, the, the worth of uh, homosexuality, if it was a sin or not, he said, it's not for me to judge. I mean, <laughs> Pope Frankie, you are the vicar of Christ on earth. <laughs> if, you're, if anybody's to judge, it's you. But nevertheless, we, we, we must remember that when we're asked about sin, God has already spoken, both to its nature and to its consequences, and to say that sin damns is not a judgmental or unloving thing to say. 
as Christ's ambassadors, we, we do not devise the message, we just proclaim the message. Right. As Paul said already in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. God God has spoken. He's spoken about sin. He's spoken about judgment. But Paul continues here, and this is amazing, in verse 11. He says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's one of the most amazing statements in the Bible. Such were some of you. The gospel is not God saves righteous people, it's that God saves sinners. He says, such were some of you, which Paul presupposes here that that those who have been redeemed have also cast off the shackles of these sins. We don't continue to carry them with us. Paul doesn't say, and such are some of you. He says, such were some of you. Paul also says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If we're not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we're not Christians. Mind you, we don't become Christians by obedience. But the first evidence that we have been redeemed is that we're submitted to King Jesus. When God saves us, he removes a rebellious heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. He begins removing the old man and and replacing it with the new man. And the Spirit of God working through the revealed Word brings transformation and and conforms us to the image of Christ. And we begin, just just like David did, to rejoice like in Psalm, Psalm 19 this morning. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's not something you can say as a natural man. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also are they than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So the only way we could ever utter words like that is because of the saving power of Jesus Christ. So I want to close this morning uh, with four exhortations. This is a largely negative passage, so three of them are in the negative, but one is in the positive. And the first is, do not get caught up in new revelations. New revelation is attractive, it's exciting, but it's deadly. God's revealed will is clear and it's sufficient for us. If there's a man who claims new revelation from God's odds are it proceeds from his own wickedness or from the devil. Second thing I want to exhort you is do not try to assume the place of God. It seems so obvious, but that's what we do with most of our sins in reality is we try to assume the place of God. God is God and there is no other God is God and there is none like him. 
Third is do not follow your heart. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. James teaches us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, his heart. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The heart is not a trusted organ for guidance. Our hearts are inclined to serve our fleshly instincts. So do not use your heart to set the standard or boundaries of your own life. Finally, the fourth exhortation here is to submit to the master. The original question, who is the master? Is it you or is it Christ? Because he is a good master. His ways are right and pure. They are beneficial to his servants, leading us to thrive in him. And he's the source of all good. So we find our rest in submitting to the Master. Amen. Alright, Paige and Stan are going to come up and lead us in another song.